you know, you're going to have uh, a version of humans that will evolve. They'll still be humans. They're going to be different than you and me. This is Space Watch Daily, a place to get insights into this second great space race. I'm David Ariosto. Is that part of this drive for exploration? Is it part of survival? Dr. Janet Cavande is the president and chief science officer for Sierra Space. Now, this is a aerospace company based out there in Colorado that is not only working in collaboration with Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origin Space Company in building something that they're calling Orbital Reef, which is essentially this commercially developed, owned, operated, private space station that's going to play a big role in the commercial side of space, whether it's in research or whether it's in other commercial enterprise. But they're also building something that I got a chance to go out and see under construction, which is called the Dream Chaser. Um, This is essentially a reusable space plane. Uh, Think of the old shuttlecraft in a more modern context and that it's essentially meant to ferry crew and cargo into space. Before she did all this, she was a former NASA astronaut, uh, a veteran of three space shuttle missions, and she also served as NASA's deputy chief of the astronaut office. And, oh yeah, she also has a PhD in analytical chemistry from the University of Washington. So I cannot think of a better person to launch the inaugural episode of this podcast And so we should just jump right into it. I I basically started off by asking her how she got started on this path of reaching for the cosmos. The interest was there since I was a little kid. So I'm one of those uh, that did want to be an astronaut ever since I was a child. Bright stars, you know, love just looking into space. And, And you can know light. You know, like I have a house in Houston. I can't see anything from there, right? So if I had grown up there, I probably wouldn't have had... Mm-hmm. any of the similar kinds of yearning. So you, you will find a lot of Midwestern people being astronauts. You know, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Ohio, too, especially they have one of the records. But, yeah, and uh, I was just a little kid when all the Apollo stuff was happening. But I was, you know, if you were alive at the time, there was no way not to be impressed with, you know, the moon landing. It was everything to everyone. You know, I, I can only imagine what growing up in that era must have been like. Um, and yet, actually growing up in this era with the commercialization of space is equally fascinating um, in the context of where we're going and how much growth and innovation can kind of play into that. A question I actually have, though, is when we start to look at the risk tolerance as part of public programs relative to private po- programs, that seems different. You know, there's a quick, fast, iterate type of mentality now with get things on the launch pad, see what works, see what doesn't. When the human factor comes in, that changes a little bit. And I'm wondering how that plays into into your calculus and, and really the broader calculus of the commercial sector as it starts to put human beings up there in space. If you made it as completely as safe as you would love to, you, could, you couldn't lift it off the ground. It just, you can't have, a, you won't have a rocket big enough. Um, and it won't function. So to be functional and to carry cargo, which is the whole point, you have to make it, you have to trade off things, right? And then you have to weigh the risk of, of that trade. 
Uh, and we have a really good safety person who is, and you need really good safety people who are not afraid to speak up, and that's the key. Um, you can't ever shut down your safety person, and uh, anytime anyone has a concern that they feel strongly enough to bring up to their boss, yeah. we're obligated to investigate it, right, and to really run it to ground. One of the transition when we talked about going to from NASA to to commercial is pros and cons. I can give you both sides. So NASA, um, having lost two sets of crews and multi-billion-dollar spacecraft, is accused now of being too conservative, too cautious, yeah. right? Too cautious, right? Uh, risk adverse was the big term that they were using on at NASA. But NASA just had you know, been burned and, and had made some wrong decisions, right? Their tr risk trades didn't pay off. They had looked at the O-rings on Challenger, decided that it wasn't something that they needed to worry about mm -hmm. at the recommendation of Morton Thiokol at the time. And Morton Thiokol recommended launching that day, even though the engineer didn't, and NASA accepted that recommendation and they lost, right? So that's bad, poor risk trade, but they weren't given all the data. Challenger, um, sorry, uh, Columbia, it was um, the foam coming off the tank and hitting the, the vehicle was thought not to be that bad because it's just styrofoam, how bad can styrofoam be? But it's a very simple equation, force is mass times acceleration. You don't have to have a lot of mass if you have a lot of acceleration to get the same force. Yeah. In space, in a space. fleck of paint can cause tremendous damage. It can poke a hole in something just because you're going 25,000 um, miles per hour up there, well, 17,500 miles per hour, five miles per second. It's this, a bullet, you know, fired out of a gun. That's the, the speed that you're going up there. But most of the shielding on the, on the habitable part of the station stops it. Now yeah. when you get to be like a half inch diameter, those can really puncture all the way through. Any orbiting vehicle takes a chance when it goes to space that it could be hit by, yeah. by micrometeorite debris. Um, or bigger. So the same thing that happens with NORA giving data to NASA, they could also provide data to us and, um, you know, while you're accelerating up to the station, you, um, during ascent, you can't really change your course. There's just yeah. too much momentum. Once you're in orbit, uh, they can kind of track you and know where you are and, and where debris is and then you rendezvous with the space station, then you're, you know, you're joint with them and you have the same warnings that they, they do. But it's just part of the risk that yeah. you have to accept to travel to space. What has uh, irritated is a mild word, but what has um, disappointed and angered a lot of people in space is when, the ch when China or Russia shoot their own yeah. satellites, they create so much more debris. Not just the just natural, recently. right? Yeah. yeah, just recently. So you always deal with the natural stuff. And we had been dealing with the Chinese uh, test for many years. And now we have to deal with the Chinese, which is still in orbit, and the Russian, uh, on top of the natural uh, stuff up there. And all the old rocket casings that are still orbiting and, right. and new little satellites that people have sent up. but haven't put on the capability to deorbit, so now they're going to be space junk forever. So uh, there is a, a conference dedicated to this um, uh, intent to be responsible. It's kind of like with everything else, right? Um, be responsible when you send something to orbit that you can always deorbit it as well at the end of its functional life. And that's more expensive.
people don't want to do it, but it really needs to be done. Oh, that's 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 really interesting. You know, one of the things that I've sort of struggled to wrap my head around is just the scope of so many different facets of this. But when I tried to break these things down into separate pillars, you know, I came across defense and security-related um, aspects and uses of space. There's the research components. There's the broader commercial sector when it comes to telecoms and potential tourism, maybe potential mining um, down the road. Um, you know the intersection of some of these new technologies, but you know what? What am I? What am I missing here in terms of how you're looking at space and how Sierra is? Um, when you say research, uh, there's the research that NASA's been conducting, which is kind of basic research on the human body and how we adapt to space and and some how we're going to live longer in space. But I guess the one that's missing is partly commercial is the production. What can we build in space that will pay the bills essentially, yeah. right? So research doesn't usually pay a lot of bills unless you discover this drug for cancer, you know, whatever it is. Um, if it's just learning how humans adapt to spaceflight, that's good information, but it doesn't help the rest of the population other than bone density issues and intracranial pressure and all those kinds of things. You really need to create a product that only that you can only build in space. That's so much better than what you can make on the ground that it's really going to revolutionize, and and you'll have a demand that sustains that low Earth orbit. Um, what is that? Well, one I am fascinated with um, is the possibility to print, 3D print and or grow organs in space. So uh, yeah. we already know that with advances in 3D printing that we can print human tissue already, which is bizarre. Let's, let's, let's start with like tumor cells. Tumor cells on the on the ground don't grow well in petri dishes. They they don't form their actual uh, structure because gravity actually flattens them out. In the human body, they grow great because they got all this other stuff to grow and attach to. Mm -hmm. But in space, they grow the way they grow in the human body. So if you are looking at a tumor and like, oh my gosh, look how it forms, we can have a drug that attacks that uh, process of the way it's forming, mm -hmm. and develop a cancer drug that's unique, that you can only see this either in autopsies, which are too late, or in, in tumors you can grow in space, which we've already done. Now we know we can 3D print human tissue. Can we 3D print, oh, I start out with a kidney, right, in space that would function in the human body? I don't know, maybe. Or could you actually start out with stem cells of a kidney and grow it which I think would be better. I'm not a medical doctor, but I think I'd prefer the stem cell can, uh, kidney. A heart, a liver. Could we grow those in space? And now, and manufacture, essentially, an organ manufacturing company, you don't have to wait for a donor anymore. You don't have to wait for anybody to die to get a heart or a lung or whatever, right? Uh, we're limited. I did a little bit of research on that. How many people need transplants every year versus how many can get them because of lack of donors and, and tish, yeah. tissue matches. So if that, just that one thing were to work, I think that would revolutionize healthcare and be a product. You would want to gouge um, people, but you would, it would have to pay for itself. But just think how revolutionary that could be, right? Especially you could kind of mass produce kidneys, <laughs> mass produce all these things. I hope we ensure that we do it for the benefit of humankind, right? We bring back things to this planet that make our lives better. 
uh, higher quality of life. Um, if we do longevity, how do we balance population growth versus longevity? Longevity is interesting. Yeah, right? Uh, that's a whole other ethical debate. Some people are more prone to genetic damage from radiation than others. Right. We're not prone to the damage, but prone to be able to repair their cells, right? Themselves from this damage. We were, we're talking about the first person that went to the moon or Mars, right? Um, let's say Mars, because you're that people go to the moon, but to stay for long periods of time. Mars is going to be crazy hard. Your chance of survival and coming back, 50-50 best, right? Um, but wouldn't you want to at least, even though we can't select right now, it's illegal to genetically select people for jobs. In that case, would it not be more ethical to do that based on the cost and the, and the consequences, right? If they're gonna, if they have a predisposition not to survive or not to repair their cells, and we know they're gonna get a lot of radiation, would it not be better to pick that person that we know is more likely to do better? Uh, the idea of, of genetically screening for job applications could be problematic, uh, I, I might think. I don't know how you might put that in a, a LinkedIn profile, but um, let's say it happens and by, by dint of just you know the necessity and how for, foreboding the conditions are uh, in places like Mars. Um, but even if you didn't, and you had people that just through sort of natural selection over time just started over thousands of years perhaps, started to just fundamentally become different than those of us who are living on Earth. Do you start to get what are just fundamentally different humans? And that's not even to mention questions of how these new new subsets govern themselves and, and um, you know, just, just a host of questions that comes out of that. Um, yeah, let's leave it there. Well, if you don't, so due to Darwinism, due to survival of the fittest, that humans who go there who aren't well equipped genetically to handle it will die off and you will end up with the people who are predisposed to survive longer will be the people that procreate and have more children. So if you do it before you launch them, you eliminate that process of having sure. Darwin do Darwin's thing, right? Where you, the, the weaker just die off. Yeah. You will end up with the people who are gonna survive on Mars anyway. Yeah. So you could argue, you could prevent all that sadness and death of people who shouldn't have gone and their progeny who will suffer and die by just putting the people that so far we know have a better chance. Now we may not get it, get it all right. We're all subsets of, of survival, right? I mean, we have all evolved based on where we live. So it's already happened. We already have different people based on where they've lived. Uh, so now this is the next extreme. You know, you're, you know, you're gonna have uh, a version of humans that will evolve. They'll still be humans, yeah. but they're gonna be different than you and me now because they're going to live on a planet with co2 different pressure more radiation over you know ten thousand years they'll probably look way different too yeah but not in our lifetime they wouldn't look. they will slowly genetically change over time so giving the people the boost to survive the first colony on mars i think is not unethical i think it's ethical but people will argue that 
I just think it gives us a better chance. Well, that does it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And just as a reminder, all of these conversations, or at least many of them, will be folded into a book project. So stay tuned for that. Subscribe to this podcast. I'm David Ariosto, and thanks so much for listening and and joining us and exploring this exciting next phase of where we're going. Mm -hmm.